schools alone. Leave the kids alone. Leave the kids alone. Leave the kids alone. Leave the kids alone. these parents I mean I think they're making decisions in a very difficult environment I mean I know that we do inform consent but really I mean how realistic is it to believe that a 14 or 15 year old or 16 year old has really the capacity to make that kind of decision for him or herself but at the same time to deny them that's tough I mean these are these are this is a it's, this is tough stuff did I wear this shirt today to school? Yep. Did I have quite a few students read it? Look at me. Read it. Look at me. Yep. Did I even have students come up to me and say, your shirt says gay. I'm like, I know. And they're like, it shouldn't say that. And I said, but it's not a bad word. And then I even had students look at me and say, but it is. I said, do you think I'm bad? He said, no. I said, I'm gay. I'm married to a woman. All families look different. And so that is just the power of wearing these shirts. Thank you so much. Um, and we have, a, we have a small crowd this morning, but a very good crowd. So uh, feel free to unmute yourself too, if you'd like to uh, uh, ask some questions. But I see Dr. Dopkin already went into the chat room and said, uh, what is the youngest age female to male you have operated on? Um, so it's actually been about 14 and a half. Um, we tend to start operating around the age of 15 or 16, um, partly just because um, some of the patients that are younger than that may not have established care um, for a long enough period to meet the criteria for the WPATH. And one of the things we sometimes struggle with with insurance companies, for which I've done a number of peer-to-peers, is just justifying that a patient under the age of 18 is still an appropriate candidate um, for surgery. So I would say 14 and a half is the youngest. On average, it tends to be 15 or 16 when I'm doing a lot of the surgeries. I had a fun little conversation with my students yesterday. For those of you who are new, I am very queer. I am non-binary and I use they, them pronouns and my students know this. But yesterday, I had some boys asking about it and I explained to them, like, here's how you use it, here's an example. We use it in the English language all the time. And they respond with, well, if you're a man, then I can be a woman. And so I looked at him and I said, okay, do you want me to use she, her pronouns for you? And he goes, uh, no. And I responded with, okay, so you're just saying that to hurt my feelings then. And he goes, oh, blah, blah, what, no. Like, yes, you are. You're being a bully. You're being transphobic. And the boys around him kept saying the same stuff. Eventually I shut it down, but how am I supposed to call parents about this behavior when they're probably the people that they learned it from? How am I supposed to ask parents for help when I know that they're not going to respect me? You identify as straight, and when you walk by two guys holding hands, it just bothers you. You just can't stop thinking about it. And all day you're thinking about it. It made you feel a little bit tingly. What would be going on a lot of times? I'm actually talking about a real phenomenon, guys. So, the most, the most aggressively anti-gay politicians and preachers, every year, two or three wind up getting caught in like gay sex scandals. Um, psychologically, it is clear as day. 
people who are like very, very aggressively anti-gay and need to control other people's behavior, it is a classic latent like self-hatred thing, and they kind of need gayness to not exist because they're trying to convince themselves that these thoughts that they sometimes have or these feelings that they sometimes have that they might not even be engaging with at a conscious level, like aren't there. Okay. Um, it's sad, honestly, because they're probably people who were told from the time they were a child, like, there's something wrong with this, it's evil, it's evil, and they believe it so deeply to the core of their beings, you know, they need not to exist. So having been a church-going child, I feel like we're in church, and this is the kind of church I'd like to be in with all of you, so welcome. Um, so we have an exciting evening prepared for you with some, uh, some information, some role plays, hopefully some different thoughts, and potentially some different feelings. So for those of you who came just to educate your brain, you might activate your heart. I'll warn you ahead of time. Um, and hopefully the combination of what you learn and what you feel in your experiences tonight will have you leaving enlightened and ready to make some even better changes in the world that you have control over. So um, as the esteemed colleague mentioned, I am Dr. Linda Hawkins. And I am the co-director of the Gender and Sexuality Development Clinic at CHOP. And um, as part of that, I get to share with you, I think I'm too close to this mic. Um, I get to share with you a little bit about how our clinic came about. Prior to There's no one-size-fits-all puberty experience. If you're trans, intersex, or non-binary, know that you're not the only one feeling confused. For some intersex people, puberty may start later than age 14. You might experience some of puberty's changes and not others, and your body may or may not go through puberty on its own. There are medicines you can take to help your body start the process, like hormone replacement therapy. Some people decide on hormones or surgeries to help their bodies match up to their gender identity or how they feel inside about themselves. Your gender identity is real. You should be the one to decide what changes you want to make to your body. If you're transgender or non-binary, you may find that your puberty experiences don't line up with your gender identity or how you see yourself. That feeling can be uncomfortable, scary, and stressful. If that sounds like you, know that you're not alone. There are medicines you can take to delay puberty for a while. They're called puberty blockers, and they work like a stop sign by halting the hormones testosterone and estrogen that cause puberty changes like facial hair growth and periods. Puberty blockers are safe and can give you more time to figure out what feels right for you, your body, and your gender identity. You don't have to have all of the answers right now. So remember, it's all a work in progress and it may take time to figure out what feels right to you, but talking to a trusted adult and a nurse or doctor may help. Want to learn more? Go to plannedparenthood.org teens. Hey y'all, um, so I got out of my haircut because um, my hair was driving me nuts. I shaved it because I'm tired of watching my hair thin out and it's less distressing if I shave it. So when I talk about being too far gone, not, I don't really know what else to call it. Um, this is what I mean. This is how deep my voice is. Um, <clears throat> it's gotten deeper over time and it's settled. Um, this is what I mean by hair loss. Um, and it just keeps getting worse. It keeps thinning. It keeps receding backwards. Um, you know, and I'm not exactly sure that's coming back. Um, those are the main things when I talk about being androgenized um, to a point of no return. Um, I really don't see those being fixable. So that's when I talk about, you know, just kind of staying how I am, regardless of how I feel. Um, that's why, just because I, I don't really see 
me personally being able to come back from what's happened so far. So I hope that's a little explanatory, um, just to kind of give a little bit more of a, um, like, kind of the, let me reword that, just to kind of, you know, talk about, like, give a more awareness to the situation, um, kind of so you can see where I'm at. Words are not working well with me right now. I'm just gonna cut this off. There you go. You know, this this is what happens when you give a woman testosterone This for five years. This is what happens, essentially. So, you know, that's it. Stay safe. The um, critical question of which there's incredible controversy. Can a young child really know their gender, number one? But number two is, how can we tell who they are? Mm-hmm. And I would say, I would borrow from President Obama's you know, original campaign slogan, yes, we can, if we learn how to do it. And indeed, there are uh, what I call apples and oranges, two separate groups of kids. Uh, there are some kids who, as I said before, just say, you know, I don't like your rules about gender, and I'm going to do it my way. And those are often the kids that get labeled the tomboys or the sissies, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're just being gender creative. Many of those kids are on their way to discovering their gay, lesbian, bisexual, or pansexual identities. And they uh, explore gender on the way to doing that. They are very different than the group of kids who say early on, you all have it wrong, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl, or I'm not a girl, I'm a boy-girl. But they're saying about who they are, male, female, or other, is not who people are seeing them as and when people still please start listening. It's not always completely easy to tell the two groups of kids apart, but if you give it enough time, you can. And so, yes, we have a whole group of kids who are perfectly fine with the sex assigned to them in their birth certificate, but they're not perfectly fine with the proscriptions and prescriptions about how you're supposed to do gender. So let's dive in to the topic that we're really here to talk about today, which is gender diversity in young children. As we look at gender diversity specifically, it's important to recognize that gender diverse children, and you might also hear the terms gender expansive or gender creative, those, it's all referring to the same group of children who do not fit neatly into a binary stereotyped system. But gender diverse children can present in a wide variety of ways. Some gender creative children will express a very strong preference for or enjoy activities, clothing, uh, hairstyles, things like that, that are outside of gender norms or reject clothing and toys and activities that are maybe considered appropriate for the gender that they were assigned. A much smaller number of children who are gender diverse will experience and express distress around their assigned gender. And that can result in self-harming behaviors even at a very young age. But again, that's a smaller number. Most young children experience some fluidity in their preferences and their interests, and not all children fit neatly into a binary male-female box. It's very, very common to see this fluidity of interests and preferences and things like that during these early years. Another important thing to understand is that while all young children who are transgender would be considered gender diverse, not all young children who are gender diverse are or will be transgender. In fact, the vast majority of gender diverse children are not transgender. 
This is one reason why creating safe spaces in early childhood for children to explore their preferences and express themselves authentically is so important. Children who are given this space have a much easier time developing their sense of self and their own identity. Question. So on page five, number three, it says the district shall permit a student or parent slash legal guardian to request a change of name. What happens if they disagree? So the student is seeking a name change and the parent is not prepared for the name change. Is there, does one trump the other? If Meaning the, if the student says, I'd like to start being called James, and the parent says, you're still going to call Kim, how, how does the district respond? <laughs> because that is going to happen. Like, Thanks for starting with so, an easy sorry. question. It's, it's, it's going to happen. If I can piggyback onto that to yeah. some degree, and that is mm -hmm. you talked about the privacy of the student. To what level does the privacy of the student extend if a student comes and states that I don't want my parents to know? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming we That's, don't have we don't have an obligation. We do, no, we do not have an obligation. We, we do not have an obligation to inform the child's parents. Yes, okay. We do not. So then it would be the student saying, "From here on in, I want to be called Jim," mm -hmm. and then it's Jim. I, I, I don't know if it even would be as simple as that, I mm -hmm. mean, because we, we really would try to look and work with the child and, and with, the, with the parent uh, and try to you know, provide the parent with as much information as we can, pro can provide them with. Maybe in that case, recommend some, you know, some resources to them. Our first priority is going to be to work with the child and to have, have school be a place where the child feels comfortable and where the child feels safe that, that, that they're there. Um, so if, it, if push came to shove, we would use the name that the child wishes to be called when, they, when they're in school, but it wouldn't be that hard and fast, well, that's it, we're not, we're not gonna call her Kim. Mm -hmm. you know, we would try and work with your parents and, mm -hmm. and talk with you. Okay. <coughs> I'm sure there'll be issues that arise that, wow. we, that we do not have covered. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Anna Miller with the Center for American Education. Do you ever wonder how public schools come to promote radical gender theories or how schools in red states build partnerships with Planned Parenthood to deliver sex education? Follow the money and the curriculum and you can understand what's happening. Step one, the federal government has several grant programs for states to offer comprehensive sex education programs. States can only get a grant if they pick programs approved by national bureaucrats. Bureaucrats use national standards for sexuality education written by radical interest groups to guide their approval. These interest groups not only write the standards, but then create and sell the curriculum. Planned Parenthood is the chief interest group writing the standards and profiting from these curricula. Step two, Idaho's Department of Health and Welfare accepts sex education grants. And then the state implements a curriculum called Reducing the Risk. This curriculum promotes high-risk sexual actions. It seeks to normalize sexual activity among children. It is LGBTQ inclusive, instructing students in gender identity, sexual orientation, and transgender ideology. Parental consent is often disregarded, and reducing the risk refers students to Planned Parenthood for their sexual needs. Step three, the Department of Health and Welfare directs public health districts to implement this sex education program in schools and to use associated training and materials. Idaho North Central Health District website, for instance, offers educators training on queering education and porn literacy. 
Another resource takes kids to Power to Decide, showing kids where to get an abortion. Another resource shows kids how to hide their browsing history from parents and introduces topics like polyamory and gender transitions. The Sex Etc. resource shows students articles such as Transgender Men Can Get Pregnant Too, surveys about masturbation, and Amaze.org videos featuring cartoon depictions of porn and abortion. Government agencies promote radical ideologies and behaviors, perhaps without school boards even knowing it. These programs conflict with Idaho law and with the values that make Idaho special. This must stop. The health and innocence of our children are at stake. On the next few slides, I'll share some examples of work that's happening in CDC-funded districts. To improve support for transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming students, Chicago Public Schools released guidelines outlining gender-affirming protocols and policies. These guidelines describe ways that schools are expected to create safe and supportive spaces for all students, such as ensuring that they're protected from bullying and discrimination, establishing their right to privacy, allowing open expression of their gender identity, and ensuring that they're addressed by their affirmed name and pronouns. The district also provided a toolkit with resources to support gender diversity in schools, and they held professional development for all 40,000 staff members to help schools implement these guidelines. Seattle Public Schools is highlighting the strength, resilience, and pride of queer and transgender students in their district through the creation of a book and photo exhibit which showcased the stories of LGBTQ students, their families, and district staff. The book and the exhibit will be used as educational tools for staff training, classroom education, community engagement, and parent education. Seattle Public Schools is also incorporating the book into students' learning by developing grade-level lesson plans. The book will be available at all school libraries, as well as school counselor and nurse offices, and the school-based health centers. These activities help support inclusivity district-wide, reaching more than 53,000 students. Albuquerque Public Schools formed a virtual GSA so that they could continue meeting despite disruptions they faced from pandemic-related school building closures. Through this format, students and their advisors collaborated on the Pronouns Project empowering students to advocate to use their preferred names in their virtual classroom settings. Students met with community leaders and with school board members to gain guidance and support for their work before they presented it to district leadership and they got the change approved. As a result, students in the district can now update their preferred name in the student information system, which automatically updates teachers' rosters and virtual classrooms. Students also wrote a resolution to make the district more supportive for LGBTQ plus students. They presented this with hundreds of signatures from students, staff, and other community members. They presented this to the Board of Education. The board approved their resolution, which includes mandatory safe zone training for all district staff and the creation of an advisory council of LGBTQ plus students to speak with the board and other district officials. 
I pride myself on being a teacher who's very open about her life. And one of the things I'm very open about is my sexuality. I have a trans flag, a bi flag, a non-binary flag, all on my desk at my work. But there's one thing I'm not open about, and it's being poly. And today that actually became something I had to worry about for the first time. See, the kids are interviewing us teachers as a part of learning how to write profiles on others. They'll soon be doing it with each other, but they're starting with the teachers so they can all work together on one subject. And one of the kids on Tuesday is going to ask me if I have a partner. And the answer is, yeah, and I have another one too. And I don't know how to handle that conversation because while I know that the kids are more accepting of things like homosexuality, bisexuality, all of that, polyamory is not in the conversation. It's not something that is talked about. And I worry not only would this be something that might lead to rumors that I am cheating on my partner or that I am a swinger or something like that, but would also just totally derail the class. So the obvious answer, the one that I went to first, is I'm not going to talk about it. But that feels wrong too. I don't like lying to my students. I don't like telling them falsehoods. And also, I don't feel comfortable answering the question by saying, yes, I have a partner, and having to pick which one I pick as the face for my relationship. That feels super, super gross, right? So I guess what tentatively I've decided after talking with my co-teachers and my assistant principal is maybe the right way to do it is answer the question honestly. Say, while I don't feel comfortable talking about who I'm in a relationship with in this specific setting, I will say that I am bisexual. I've dated people of many different genders. Um, and if you're willing, if you're interested to talk about that or my own specific relationship that you're really, really insistent, let's just not do it in the classroom setting and we can do it like in lunch or in the after school GSA club or something like that, where maybe it's a little bit more of an acceptable and understanding situation to bring this up. Now, this is a long rambling thing, and that story has kind of wrapped itself up neatly, or at least it will on Tuesday. But I think it talks to a much broader issue, which is that, like, this is a really nuanced thought process I had to have, where I had to consider uh, the emotional maturity of the kids, where I had to consider what they already know and are talking about, and what they don't know and aren't talking about, and also have to consider how does this fit in with the content that I'm teaching. And the fact of the matter is, this is not a conversation that conservatives are having at all. They've decided that carpets, like blanket statement, like you can't do this at all. There's no place for it. And that just shows such a lack of thought and care. They're not understanding their people, their children as people and where they're at. They're not understanding the content that is necessary and they're not reckoning with any kind of reality. Yeah, maybe like this is going to be an uncomfortable situation that may lead to some strange conversations, but that's part of being a person. And I'd rather have the kids be able to have those conversations in a safe place at school than on the internet where there's no one to make sure they're learning the right, respectful information. That's problematic!